Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, we are going to continue along in our series in 1 Samuel, but uh, I do want to say thanks to Andy and Bethany for leading us in worship. I've known Andy and Bethany for quite some time. They're great friends. I uh, just love uh, getting to minister with them um, here in the Northeast. Andy actually just showed me a picture today. Um, he had his Facebook open, and it flashed a memory uh, from six years ago. He was here on May 22nd leading worship in this church, and I had just been newly installed as senior pastor. Isn't that incredible? Uh, boy, God, God's providence, right? Uh, he doesn't do things like that for no reason. Um, we're continuing along in this uh, vision and this theme that we've been pursuing this year, Heart for the Community. And I've been really excited about this day where we're going to get out and walk in this Walk for Hope with Hack. I think this is a big deal uh, for the church to get outside of the doors and go and show the love of Christ to others. I've been reading a lot about community engagement and one of the th uh, principles that keeps coming up as I'm studying on it is that loving people, doing good de deeds in the name of Jesus is one of the most powerful apologetics of the church. It really is. You want the proof of the authentic love of Christ? Well, people see authenticity in the church's generosity. It it's kind of irrefutable. When someone does something for you and they have nothing to gain from it, they just want something for you and not something from you, it communicates to them that you're genuine, that you're authentic, that you love them. So let's continue to be a church that has a heart for the community. I think this is a big deal. We're going to continue in our series, and, and David is actually going to show us another way that we authenticate the love of God in our lives in this text I want to set it up with this quote from Anne Lamott. She says this, You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> you know, it's been said that to be human is to have enemies. There are going to be people in your life who either you have a hard time loving or believe it or not, they have a hard time loving you. And more often than not, the fueling is mutual. Now, I'm a pretty moral guy. I, I know how to obey the basic laws of human decency. Uh, you love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. I'm really good at that law of basic human decency. When someone's good to me, when they're kind to my kids, when they show kindness to me, I'm fine with loving them. But what about when someone is nasty? Well, then they go onto my list. And I, I go to the grocery store and I see them and I pretend like I didn't see them. Or quietly when I hear something bad's happened to them, I say, good, they got what they deserved. I'm a great moral guy. That's easy. I don't have to teach anyone how to do that. Now, Jesus took the moral guy law and he took it up to the next level when he said this. He said, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Do you see what he's saying here? 
Do you want there to be a, a defining characteristic, a quality of a man or a woman who has the heart of God? Is there some kind of quality which will cause other people to look at you and refer, infer, she's a lot like God? But Jesus boils it down to this. You have to love the people that you love to hate. Now, some of you are like, Rob, I love everyone. (laughs) No, you don't. Be honest with yourself this morning. The only person that I would believe that of is Pat Langley. (laughs) Who's my enemy? Well, your enemy is that person that you would be just fine not to see for the next 20 years. Your enemy is that person that you find yourself dwelling upon and resenting. Your enemy might live under your own roof. Maybe your enemy attends this church. Maybe you attend this service because your enemy attends the other service. You see, we're all human, and relationships bring with them friction. Now you're thinking, oh, come on, that kind of stuff doesn't happen in church. Of course it does. Because to be human is to have enemies. But to be a Christian, as Jesus says, is to learn how to love those enemies. How do I love them? I'm the kind of person that needs to see things. And what we find in the Bible is the Bible gives us principles, but it also gives us narratives or stories to show the principle in flesh. And what we have in 1 Samuel chapter 24 is a picture of David before he's king learning to love his enemy. Now, I'm not going to recap everything that's come before. The kids did a far better job of that than I could. But let's just get the simple facts down, right? David has an enemy. Who is his enemy? It's King Saul. Of course it's King Saul. Imagine a person who has the power to take away, to rob the kind of things that Saul robs from David. Your job, your spouse, they could take away your home. Maybe it's your counselor, think of Samuel, or your best friend, think of Jonathan, or even your very reputation and self-respect. You have David, before Saul gets this petty, bitter jealousy against him, in a position of great honor and great respect, and as the story moves on, he's drooling in his own beard before a king of a foreign land, and now he's running and he's hiding in caves. Now, Scripture tells us that Saul's pursuit of David is relentless. In 1 Samuel 23, 14, the text says, David remained in strongholds, the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day. He's harming him in the worst way possible. He's hunting him down like an animal. As we pick up in chapter 24, David's now in En Gedi. I have a picture of this region uh, we visited Israel three years ago. I actually took this picture of En Gedi, and you know I took it because it's so grainy and bad. I'm terrible at photography. A couple of you are going on this trip again with Harry in June. We'll be praying for that, and I believe you will be visiting this region. En Gedi is a, an oasis in the midst of a desert region. It sits high above the Dead Sea. The place is very arid. 
Um, it's like 110 degrees on a cool day there. It is really arid. But this place has cool springs and waterfalls and, and many abundant with caves for hiding. So it's the perfect hideout for a man on the run like David. And it's also a place where God decides that he is going to put David to the test. So we pick up chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. The text says, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel, and he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now already the story is getting a little more graphic than maybe we would care to know. Too much information, if you will. But the Bible tends to present the facts and only the facts. So here you have the king of Israel, and he is attending to the call of nature. Now, I don't think the Bible tells us details for no reason at all. In fact, I think what we learn is actually there is a principle here in that God has embedded certain things in the natural order to keep all of us humble, okay? Think about it. Birds don't discriminate whether a billionaire or a homeless person when they poop. They don't care. Presidents trip over their own two feet. And what we're learning here is, yes, even kings who have 3,000 men at their command sometimes must go and visit the powder room. Now, as you think about what's happening here, isn't it interesting that Saul, of all the caves and all the Gedi, he stops at the very cave where David and his men are hiding. And they can't help but read the tea leaves and see that this is God's favorable circumstances for them. Look at verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemies into your hand, and you shall do to him as it sh uh, shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. What are they saying? Well, look, David, Saul's given you, uh, God's given you Saul on a golden platter here maybe with a little side of revenge. He said that you're going to be king. He's presented you with this opportunity. You've got to go and strike right now, David. The logic appears unassailable. Here you have God presenting David with this opportunity. Now, I've heard all manner of goofy notions arise out of this same thought process. Oh, if God didn't want me to do this, well, then God wouldn't have opened this store. I mean, God gets blamed for all kinds of things that he had nothing to do with. But here's a principle that we all have to take to heart and we must keep clear. God can never bless a sinful action, even if that action may lead to God's intended result. This is true of your date in life, this is true of your work life, if you're trying to climb the ladder and seek promotion. This is true even for a man that God has said is a man after my own heart, and he will be the next king of Israel. You see, if David kills Saul in the cave, he's doing it on David's terms and not God's terms. 
He becomes Saul 2.0. Don't fall into the trap. The ends do not justify the means. That's the gospel of Satan. Satan is always seeking to tempt you to short-circuit God's plan for your life. Think about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Do you remember what Satan said to him? He presents all the kingdoms of the world with their splendor, and he says to Jesus, I'm going to give all of this to you. As you look at the story, you realize that this was true of the Messiah. God had already promised all of those things to Jesus. So what's Satan tempting him with? He's tempting him with the easy button. Bow down to me. Worship me. And you don't have to go through the humiliation of the cross. Listen, God is not interested in handing you an easy button in this life. In the life of Jesus, the path of glory involved the humiliation of the cross. In the life of David, the path of glory involved the humiliation of being on the run, hiding in caves. And in your own life, God tends to have a special set of trials and circumstances that you must go through. Because God's not interested in giving you an easy life. He's interested in maturing you and growing you to be a godly man or woman of character. That's what God wants for your life. So for David, the place where his character was built was here in the cave. God's giving him an opportunity. Not an opportunity for vengeance, but an opportunity to respond to a test. So how does he do? We'll look at verses 5 through 7. The text picks up and says, Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Chuck Swindoll, author and preacher, said this, that there's no such thing as a small step on the road to temptation or on the pathway of revenge and retaliation. You see what we have here? This is like the moral law of inertia. Inertia says that an object remains at rest unless a force acts upon it, or it will remain in motion unless, of course, a force acts upon it. And the same thing is true with your moral decision-making. It turns out that morally, once you start down a path, your thirst will not be quenched unless something acts upon you. Now, in the case of David, the force that acts upon him is his conscience. It's his conscience. I mean, what is the conscience after all? Well, your conscience is that inner mechanism telling you, stop. Don't keep heading in that direction. If you pursue this road, nothing good is going to come of this. Imagine a world where people didn't have a conscience. Imagine what kind of evil happens when someone doesn't have a conscience. We don't have to imagine that. We call those kind of people sociopaths. So 
Scripture says you have a conscience. And it's embedded in the very fabric of your nature, of who you are. Your conscience is whispering God's yes and God's no to you, what's right and what's wrong. Romans 2 actually says your conscience is telling you God's law in your inner being. One author says this, that this is the value of the conscience. He says the conscience is a friend to hurry you into the arms of your Savior from whose law it points. That's why God gave you a conscience. Maybe you walk into a church environment or you have friends who are really religious. And sometimes when you're in this vicinity or you're around those friends, you feel somewhat unworthy. Maybe that's your conscience speaking to you. I want to suggest this morning, though, that when you have feelings like that, those feelings are not meant to repel you away from God. Don't run from those feelings. No, by giving you those kind of feelings, God's actually drawing you unto himself. He's saying, I'm your God. You need to come back to me. You need to know me. And the way you come to know him is through his son, Jesus. You see, the conscience proves to us that God is a seeking God. He's put an inner homing beacon into each of our hearts. And the reason he did this is so that we would find our way back home in Jesus. Now, as we look at this story more, even with his conscience pricked, we're going to see that this loving your enemy thing is not particularly easy. Uh, David, his own men, they try to convince him to change his mind. Uh, I can hear the arguments in the cave right then and there. David, what are you thinking right now, man? I mean, here he is. God's given you a saw on a golden platter. Why didn't you stick the knife in his back? David's like, no, 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 that's not what I'm supposed to do. And then some of the guys get really aggressive and they say, well, if you're not going to do it, then I'm going to go do it. The text says that David persuaded his men. Now, if you translate the Hebrew, the Hebrew actually says he tore them apart. Basically, David comes back at the men and he says, if you lay a finger on him, I'll have your head. And the next time one of your friends tries to tell you to do something vengeful, don't say the same thing to them. David's going to be the future king, so he's a little more authoritarian, if you will. But get his point here, right? He's convinced that it would greatly dishonor the Lord if he were to touch Saul. So he leaves the cave and he confronts Saul and they have this encounter. Look at verses 8 through 15. The text says this. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your life? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, 
you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. What a brilliant, powerful speech David gives us here. You know, when it comes down to loving your enemy, it's very easy to be platitudinal about that, to virtue signal about it. I can stand up in front of everyone and say, love everybody. I love everybody. I don't have any enemies. As we're coming to see, that's just not true. You're not being honest with yourself. And the only way that you're going to truly love your enemy is if you have some theological conviction as to why you should. In this powerful speech, David exposes us to his worldview. This is why I'm willing to love you, Saul. It's not because of who you are. No, it's because of who God is. Let's look at a couple of the principles that we can extrapolate from this speech. First, look at this first principle. To love your enemy, you must actually look past your enemy and see God. David looked past Saul, and he saw God. Twice he makes this point, once to his men and once to Saul himself. He said, I will not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. Who chose Saul to be king? God. By whose authority is Saul king? By God's. So if that's the case, then to attack Saul is to indirectly attack God himself. Look at what he's showing us. If I have an enemy, and I sit and fixate on them, and their attitudes and their behavior and the offenses that they have committed against me, I'm never going to learn how to love them. I have to look beyond them. It's easy to forget that when someone's offended you, when they've hurt you, even when they've annoyed you. But let me ask you a question. When you look beyond them and you see God, what's true of every enemy? Well, Scripture says they're made in God's image. You look at James. James said this in James 3.9, with our mouth we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. You're not going to love anyone if you don't look beyond them and see the handprint of the Creator on them. I remember my brother and I were having a conversation, and this was several years ago. In his company, he's been climbing the ladder. He's been growing in management, and as you grow in management, you have to start supervising people. And in one of his first management roles, there was a particular employee who was making his life extremely difficult. I don't remember all the details as to why, but the one thing I do know 
is that he wasn't looking forward to going to work because of this employee. And whenever he would look in the general vicinity of the employee, uh, it was hard to not think negative thoughts towards him. He was telling me about this, and he said, you know, one day I was reading the Word of God in my quiet time, and I was praying. And the funny thing was the text had nothing to do with this particular situation. It was just on his heart. And he said, you know, as I was reading and praying, I began to see this person with God's eyes. I went to work that day, and instead of seeing the object of my frustration, I saw someone that Jesus sees. I felt compassion for this person. I began to realize that there must be something beyond just this work dynamic going on in this person's life. I began to engage them differently. And, and as God gave him a new heart for this employee, guess what? They ended up developing a relationship. He said they would go out together and spend time together, and he actually learned to like and appreciate this person. I'm telling you, as we see this, that to practice the radical love of Jesus, you're not going to do it unless you look beyond the person and you see God. And here's another principle that relates to that. David also shows us this, that to love your enemy, you must have absolute confidence in God. The theological core of 1 Samuel 24 is verses 12 and 15. David says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Look at verse 15 as well. May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now, the Bible tells us over and over again this core truth about God. God is the judge. He's the judge. I'm not the judge. You're not the judge. God is. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 32 explains it like this, vengeance is mine. Recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Then Paul in Romans 12 takes that same text and he says this to believers. He says, beloved Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, verses like this provide you stable guidance in a chaotic world of relationships. There are so many hard things that can happen to you in this world. And if you live by the moral guy law, you're going to find yourself getting stuck. Because guess what? There aren't always satisfying conclusions to relational dynamics in this world. Here's the cold, hard facts of life. Sometimes you get hurt, and there is no closure this side of heaven. I mean, think of a person who suffers abuse and the abuser's never brought to justice, or the abuser dies before justice can be delivered. 
Or think of a spouse who has been deeply betrayed by their spouse, and there's no like legal law as to this is wrong and you can't do this. So there's not going to be any real closure for that person who's offended or someone that's wrongfully terminated from a job or someone who is hurt by another person because the other person exercised bad judgment. Even if there's a lawsuit and there's some money exchanged, you're still living with an injury for the rest of your life. There's no real closure. It turns out that this life is not a fairy tale. And beyond that, vengeance is going to whisper in your ear, and it's going to make you a promise. It's going to say this, if you get even, or you dwell on that person, and you feel resentful towards them, and bitter, and just hate them every day of your life, well, then that's going to make you feel better. Essentially, it's saying you'll get closure. But you won't. You won't get closure. No, the saddest part about trying to get even is that it makes you the perpetual victim of another person's hate. Ray Pritchard said it like this, when you give in to the temptation to get even, your enemies have won twice when they hurt you for the first time and now when you can't get them out of your mind. And worse than that, you begin to sink down to their level. In verse 13, David said, I refuse to do that. He quoted that proverb, out of the wicked comes wickedness. He's saying, Saul, you have been wicked to me. I'm not going to be wicked in return. I don't want to sink to your level. So then how do you get resolve? How do you get closure? How do you live with pain in a world that doesn't tie a neat bow around a lot of these types of dynamics and situations? Well, David again shows us the way of how to do that. If you're a reader of the Psalms, you know that David regularly talks about his enemies in the Psalms. He regularly processes the dynamics with the Lord. In fact, just this past week, I was reading Psalm chapter 40, and in that psalm, David made this prayer to the Lord. Listen to it. He said, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. Now, I used to read those psalms and I felt kind of uncomfortable. You know, they're called imprecatory psalms. And David is actually praying down like a curse upon this person. And you read it and you're like, you know, he kind of sounds angry as he's saying these things. Well, guess what? He is angry. <laughs> He's really angry. Did you know that anger is not necessarily a sinful emotion? God created it. If you look at the scriptures, God exercises anger at times in the Bible. No, the Bible's only counsel when it comes to anger is this. Don't allow anger to drive you into sin. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, for example, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil an opportunity. It's a powerful emotion. 
It can compel you to do things. So why did God create anger? Well, the Bible says that anger is a justice response. When you've been mistreated or someone you love's been mistreated, you become angry. And sometimes my anger is justified. I truly have been mistreated. Other times my anger is unjustified. I'm driving down the road and I come to an intersection at the same time with someone and I believe it's my God-given right to go first. Unjustified anger. But here's the thing. The point I'm making is this. Don't allow your anger to drive you into sin, no matter the reason for your anger. Your anger, as David shows us, is meant to drive you to God. You see, the reason the Psalms have so many venting sessions is the Bible is teaching us this about the life of prayer. You are meant to take your frustrations, your pains, and your anger directly to God. In fact, it's far better to do that than to sit around with a bunch of your yes men and women telling you that you're perfect. God is the only one who can appropriately handle your anger. And it's in that place that you find spiritual closure for your frustrations. Look at what David says in the next part of that prayer. He says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, Lord, I am poor and needy but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Friends, that's absolute confidence. David knows that God's got his back. Here's the thing with this revenge thing. No one's gonna blame you if you take revenge. Again, that's the moral guy law. Every other moral guy does that. But if you do do it, nothing will be different about you. You'll be just like everyone else. You won't stand out as a godly person of character, as a godly Christian. No, it takes a person of godly character to stay their hand. When you, people see you live out that kind of radical love, that's when they start asking questions like, who does such a thing? I can't believe that they went through that situation and they chose to respond in love despite it. That's when you stand out. And even in this story, David stands out before Saul. Look at the next part of the story, verse 16. The text says, As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you surely shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. He's speechless, isn't he? 
Who does this? He's looking at David and he's saying, you have the character of a king. I see it in you, David. The principle from this text is this. Few things are more infectious than a godly lifestyle. Few things. When people see you living this kind of radical love, it will be infectious. They'll want to know why. Why do you live like this? Let's go back to what Paul said in Romans 12. Same principle, right? Vengeance is mine. He said, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And by doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, Paul's not saying that is some kind of passive-aggressive, you'll get this passive-aggressive joy out of being righteous. That's not what he's getting at there. No, the principle is the next verse, right? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, mercy is at God's heart. I've been doing a lot of reading about mercy with this theme, a heart for the community. It's just core to the nature and the character of God. Think about what God has done for us. The text says, because of God's mercy, that he sent his son, God the Son, to take on flesh into the world. Jesus dwells among us, and he faces the ignominy and humiliation of the cross for his enemies. Who was Jesus' enemy? What was you? It was me. What will make you look most like Jesus? Loving your enemy. I've seen this truly played out. I've seen this in the flesh in my own life. When I was in high school, my father went through a serious, serious trial with an enemy. Now, if you don't know um, my dad, my dad's a pastor. I happen to be Rob 2.0, and he is Rob 1.0, and he's been in ministry a long time, since the time of the dinosaurs. <laughs> now, I'm not going to get into all the gory details and the ins and outs. I'll just kind of give you the high level. When I was in high school, there was a youth pastor at my dad's church who decided that he should be the pastor, and he tried to take over the church. There was a lot of nasty rumors, false accusations. In fact, he got a contingent of members to come together and call a meeting to try to vote my dad out of the leadership of the church. Now, thankfully, there were enough people who had come to this meeting who knew my dad's character. They were saying things like, oh, he's an overbearing pastor. He's a harsh pastor. And if you knew anything about my dad, he's not overbearing. That's the last thing you can accuse him of. Silly, maybe, but not overbearing. Well, the church comes around him and they vote. But this pastor still takes about a quarter of the congregation with him. Now, when you watch someone go through a trial like this, you become laser-like focused on them. How are they going to handle it? What are they going to do? And as a high schooler, I'm watching all of this dynamic play out. I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is what I'd say to that person if I was in your shoes. This is how I would handle it. But you know what he did? He never said an ill word of the person that was 
causing all this trouble. He never gossiped about the person. In fact, anytime people said harsh and mean things toward him, all I ever heard him do was respond in gentleness and kindness. And when he felt overwhelmed and when he felt anxious about the situation, instead of going and processing and venting to his yes men around him, he took it to the Lord. We've talked about this time, this season in his life quite a few times, and he regularly comes back to this point. He says, you know, Rob, as I went through this, I had a lot of members come to me who stuck with the church and who are with me still today, and they say to me regularly, I saw more of Jesus in you responding graciously to those people than any sermon I've ever heard you preach. I think they're right. I really think they're right. He's a great preacher. He, he brings the word of God with conviction. But I've got to tell you, as his son, watching him go through that trial, that ordeal, and conducting himself with integrity, he looked like Jesus. Do you want people to see Jesus in you? Well, let these words sink in from him. I tell you, Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I know, Lord, that the call of Jesus, this call to live for Jesus, it's not an easy way of life. There are difficulties when it comes to following Jesus. He says, in fact, in the scriptures, sometimes people might even persecute you because of his name. I pray that we would be the men and women who shine the light of Christ through the way we love others, Lord. We don't want to live a platitudinal love or a virtue-signaling love. We want to live the authentic love of Christ who even when he was nailed to the cross, did not revile his enemies, but shed his own blood for us. We thank you for his example. We thank you for the example of David, and we thank you for men and women who live the life of Christ as models before us. Help us to grow in your character and your likeness, to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen.